Hello, I'm Susie. Welcome to my podcast. You know, I think a lot about the idea of rights. Uh, Conflicts centering on the concept of rights exist throughout human history in one form or another. Rights of sovereignty, rights of succession, rights of suffrage. Where do they come from? What does it mean to have a right? I have a lot of thoughts about it. I'd like to share them with you. As my ideas for this podcast have evolved, I've had a lot of great help um, from people who I trust, and I'm going to follow some really good advice for this topic. I'm going to break it up into three parts. The first part will be dealing with uh, sort of the idea of rights in general, and in specific, uh, the idea of rights in America. That's where I live, so that's what I think about most. In the second part, I'll be um, talking about uh, concepts of power and ideas of winning. Uh, And then in the third part, I'll be talking about principles of fear and um, throughout kind of finding the connective tissues um, between how the ideas of rights have evolved throughout human history. I hope you'll hang out with me and listen to those thoughts. Human rights in America has really been foundational to our our whole existence. The idea of of rights, and and particularly the idea of uh, universal rights, uh, is, as Americans, rooted in our understanding of our Declaration of Independence, which was the document that first began our separation from the English monarchy, as most good Americans know. The interesting thing about the Declaration of, of Independence, there, there are so many, um, but, you know, famously authored by Thomas Jefferson, who was himself, you know, an Enlightenment thinker and was heavily influenced by other Enlightenment thinkers of the time, such as John Locke and Jeremy Bentham. I'll talk a little bit more about them in a moment. But at its most basic, you know, in, t- in contemporary society, you know, we tend to think about rights in the context of civil rights or legal rights, um, the conflicts of individual citizens and their battles for equity in, in, the, in their moral and, and legal rights in the country. But at its origin, the idea of rights was something very different. And in part, I think, because the idea of humanity as a whole um, was different and, and more uh, less with respect to the individual organism and more with respect to humanity as a social structure. Uh, all things, I think, are dependent upon our understanding of our social structure and, and why they're subject to so much disagreement, um, because where you are in the social structure can really influence your ideas about that social structure. For example, at the beginning of the American Revolution, the idea of one's role in the social structure within the British colonies on the American continent were that they were subjects of the king 
um, and subjects to perhaps whimsical, perhaps tyrannical rule uh, to which they had no recourse or no power. And that was seriously problematic for revolutionary Americans. But I think it's important to note that those rights that they set forth in that moment originated in the rights of commerce and economic independence, you know, which ultimately filters out to more basic needs stuff, obviously. But, you know, it also has a framework of power. And, and we'll, we'll talk about that um, a little bit more in depth. But if you're a white male landowner, you have rights. But, you know, the white male landowners were not the only individual humans comprising the population of the then colonies. A lot of those people were convicts, for example, transported from Britain because it was uh, easier to basically conscript servitude labor as penance, right, rather than house and feed and shelter convicted criminals. They forfeited their rights for all intents and purposes. Further, slavery was, um, you know, a common practice, not just in the United States, um, but uh, throughout the known uh, Western world, Europe, Europe and Russia, um, even, you know, Africa, as far back as Egypt, Romans uh, after them, that slaves were very much part of social structure throughout our history, um, imported in a, you know, brand new way um, in, in the U.S. and, and made um, very much our own. But again, in, in essence, the British colonies, of course, inherited European class structure. European class structure obviously informs how your role, you know, is defined amongst others. You know, where are you on, on the level, you know, um, in the rankings, if you were, you can think about it in, in some ways as, um, you know, like Indian caste uh, systems. But, you know, interestingly, the Enlightenment, <laughs> You know, it sort of sets aside those questions uh, for the moment. And, but importantly, these are big questions, right? And at the time, you know, you, you are looking at a revolutionary set of ideals being set forth here where everything before in terms of your rights as an individual was in essence defined again by your place in the, in the social structure. And the Enlightenment, you know, kind of removes that thinking in the sense that it's not dependent upon, you know, a power structure sort of endowing you with rights. It's something wholly apart and independent from those other social structures. You, you know, the Enlightenment period, um, you know, re beginning around the late 17th century, uh, mid to late 17th century, a period representing a massive transition in thinking, uh, also sometimes referred to as the age of reason um, in matters of state, the value of a person isn't defined by their place in the social order in this thinking, in theory, in theory. Uh, and the state itself is not seen as ordained by heaven. Um, you know, you, you see this, obviously, a maneuver towards the separation of church and state, for example. The, the U.S. Constitution, uh, another, you know, sort of obviously foundational document, like by definition a foundational document in the United States, the Constitution was heavily influenced by uh, Enlightenment thinkers such as John Locke. And for Locke, uh, sovereignty, the idea of sovereign rights, resides in the people. Government is basically the natural rights of the people and the social contract in relationship 
and also the church, the separation of church and state features centrally in that in that relationship. So it's no longer the idea of king or or emperor or czar or a power ordained by God. It's um, the power of the people to have control and agency over their own manifest destiny. Um, so wholly new way of thinking. This is one of the reasons why America sort of stands apart in its ideology. <laughs> um, in its ideology, America does continue to stand apart as a model of democracy. It's imperfect and it's deeply flawed for a lot of the reasons that I discussed throughout the course of this podcast. But yeah, I think it's really important to hold in our hearts as Americans the truth of the aspirational ideals. Um, and I do think, you know, that, you know, and I have quoted before, you know, Martin Luther King, um, who has said that the long arc of history bends towards justice. And I think the long arc, arc of history bends towards balance and it bends towards truth. It, like, you know, truth will out to, to coin another, you know, cliched expression, but truth does have a way of, of making itself plain. And in particular, because if truth is masked by oppression, there's limits to how much people are willing to you know, hold on to and, and take it. There's limits to that. People have a point where they're like, you know, no mas. And that comes on all sides, right? It, it, you know, comes from the sides of those being oppressed. And in some cases, it comes on sides of the oppressors who, you know, whose mechanisms have to become more and more, um, you know, frightening and elaborate to get their goals ultimately achieved. So again, the formation of the United States is founded upon this aspirational quality. Like, thank goodness, if it had been 100 years before, it might have been something very, very different. Uh, but in this moment in time, what you have is a, a whole bunch of people who believe in the transcendent quality of human reason, and they also believe that they are sort of gifted the ability to uh, manifest these truths on behalf of, you know, their society. Um, and that has obviously some really positive repercussions and it has some really, really negative repercussions, some of which we're still grappling with. And, you know, notably slavery stands out as a really big problem from since before the formation of the United States. But in the formation of the United States, there was conversation about slavery, about how do we deal with that? Um, and because it was a quotient more of economics than about humanity or rights of any kind, because again, these are not people. This is property. And when you're talking about property, the idea of rights is something that white men feel really passionate about. It's almost like it's in their DNA. No offense, white men. Like, I'm not blaming you. Right? You've been, you come by your positions, honestly. You've been told through your entire life, like you have this you know, entitlement to property and that it is sovereign, like ordained by God. So the fact that there's a lot of questions about the nature of that arrangement is, I'm sure, pretty scary. I don't blame you for reacting if you're one of those people who are reacting. Not all of you are. Shout out to my woke bays. I digress. You know, I, again, let's let's talk more, though, about those central ideas. Let's talk a little bit about what were those aspirational qualities that still exist in the frameworks of our documents. They're there, they're accessible, they're attainable if we, if we make an effort um, and if we continue to have conversations. So yeah, I wanna talk a little bit about the idea 
of universal rights. Another of the Enlightenment thinkers who had a significant influence over, uh, in particular, the Constitution, Jeremy Bentham. Jeremy Bentham is commonly thought of as the father of utilitarianism. And even if you don't, even if you're not a philosopher and a person who studies philosophy, that you've heard of the concept of utilitarianism, it's very practically accessible on a number of levels. And again, it's a central component of our thinking within the Constitution, but in, in particular, um, in the formation and in the, in the enforcement of law. So Jeremy, our good friend, Jer Bear, you know, he believes that utilitarianism is the best and, and most um, objective sort of fair metric that you can use in, in the governance of, of societies. Uh, examples of utilitarianism include taxes. Congratulations to you. You can thank Jeremy Bentham for the idea um, of taxes within a democratic institution, wherein those taxes are, you know, uh, kind of um, meant to be in a, a more uh, equal distribution of wealth in the sense of like support of the state, right, infrastructure and, and the people. Uh, licenses, another thing, you're, you're asked to sort of sacrifice a personal right by, you know, conforming to a set of government standards um, to do certain things like drive a car, build a house, um, you know, I don't know, fish. I can't think you still need a license to fish. I don't know. I don't fish. Uh, uh, more, more sort of um, dramatic examples. Uh, eminent domain is another one that sort of falls within the um, you know framework of utilitarianism to the extent that the state deems a piece of personally held property as something um, essential to the management of the state, and they then can um, you know confiscate that land under the pretext of eminent domain, which is a difficult th thing to achieve legally. So it's not, it's a high bar. Wartime acts, um, confiscation of property for the use of like hospitals or barracks or storage or, you know, whatever it may be, um, you know, that's something that that's been done and is allowed for within sort of the constraints of a utilitarianist framework. You know, so uh, again, though, there, there's a lot of sort of basic assumptions within that utilitarianism. Um, it's nuanced. It has um, you know, other mitigating factors. And that, of, again, sort of leads me into the idea of more universal rights. So the idea of universal rights, um, the thinking that there are um, rights on board, right, standard in the package, right, in the, in the Declaration of Independence, those rights are understood to be not exclusive to, mind you, but consisting largely of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Inalienable is the word that's used in the Declaration of Independence. It's inalienable. And that is a, for Jefferson, a sort of self-defining concept. Um, and it's easy to see why, in a way, um, from a person whose um, social structures depended a lot on religion, try as you may, to church and state, separate the existence of God in your life. It's not something you can easily separate from your human manifestation. So, you know, even if you can do so within a framework of law, it's difficult to be able to do so in the content of your soul. And everything that you do in the world is an expression of the content of your soul. So I think that's important to keep in mind. Human beings are deeply flawed individuals. Thomas Jefferson was no 
exception to that, you know, a deeply flawed person. But inalienable rights is a difficult concept to get your head around if you really if you really sit with it for a while, because, you know, for one thing, in the practical execution of the idea of inalienable rights, they're still mitigated, right? Because of that social contract piece. It's you have these rights, but you might waive a right in, in a way through your action. It's mitigated by free will. For example, the 13th Amendment in the Constitution sort of defines rights for uh, former slaves, uh, but unless they're convicted of a crime, you know, which begs the question of the nature of that conviction, doesn't it? Well, it does for me, right? Like, you're no longer a slave unless you get arrested for a crime and are in prison, in which case you sort of forfeit those rights and, and the state is able to, you know, kind of say that as part of your penance, you know, not unlike the British, you know, in their transportation of convicts to the American colonies, you are, you know, in some ways, state labor. It's slavery, you know, by another name. And, you know, that's that's tricky because then it always comes back to, oh, but you wouldn't be there if you hadn't convicted a crime. Okay, well, well, what was the crime? What was the crime? Because, you know, and, and this doesn't fall within the, the, um, the purviews of the legal, legal structure, but I think it's a, a good, if extreme, example of how, you know, reactions and uh, sort of cultural assumptions about a certain act can convey itself into horrific tragedy. And um, I point to the example of Emmett Till, who was 14 years old and was viciously murdered by a brutal bunch of, you know, racists um, having been accused of wolf whistling at a white woman who in the just last decade before she passed admitted that she made that shit right up. That's, I mean, if you've seen pictures of what they did to Emmett Till, that's not a state-sanctioned act. But at the time, uh, none of those people were arrested. So if not state-sanctioned, certainly not state-condemned at that time, right? There was not the horror and outrage amongst the white community, either North or South, that really propelled forward at that time any significant change. Emmett Till was not really brought to bear until, you know, decades later in the civil rights movement when people kind of lo were looking back to that and going, that like, that is just one. Like, and it's a dramatic example, which is why people continuously bring it up because it's so beautifully, in, you know, not beautifully, horrifically. But when I say beautifully, I mean succinctly and profoundly encapsulates just exactly how much of a problem, you know, a community awareness of a given you know, quote unquote truth translates into direct action that affects people's lives. And in some cases, ends those lives, which is serious business. So again, inalienable rights, but mitigated by free will. Uh, you then, you know, kind of move into a territory of the understanding of like a moral right versus a legal right, right? You might make the distinction between like murder, <laughs> And voting, you know, those that's a good, you know, kind of counterpoint. Like murder is a moral, you, you have the right to not be murdered. Like, <laughs> again, life is the first one on the list in that list of, you know, our inalienable rights. It's life. So murder is a moral right, you know, or rather your right not to be murdered, making murder a significant transgression of rights. In other words, rights in a certain social context, it's a kind of moral doctrine 
formulated through cumulative societal processes and evolving amongst communities over time. Slavery is an excellent example of this. Once again, slavery in, in our current day understanding is like probably the worst thing that you can imagine, right? Being held prisoner, captive, forced servitude, being separated from your families, being, you know, beaten and tortured with impunity, being, uh, you get it. Slavery is fucking horrible. It's horrible. But slavery was, a, you know, as mentioned before, a, a, you know, a historical institution that existed throughout history and is not unique to Americans and wasn't unique to Americans at the time of our Declaration of Independence in the late 18th century. But America, as we do with many things, you know, we took that problem and we made it our own. We made it bigger. We made it stronger. We made it stupider. And it has continued to haunt us and continues to haunt us because we sort of right now refuse to face it. We, we refuse to look it in the face and, and deal with that. But I'll talk more about that in another episode, more in depth. So there we have it. Rights. Inalienable. They're, they're on board rights. So if they're innate rights, then where do they come from? Uh, you know, I, I'd say that most people on the planet are religious in some sense. They believe in God in, in some sense. And so I think for a lot of people, it's not problematic to the extent that rights are endowed by God. They're endowed by your creator. That's what it says in the Declaration of Independence. But what if you don't believe in God? What, or rather, stated more objectively, what if, you know, there is no God? You know, what if there's no sentient creator, right? Like, or what if your idea of God is, is different, like in Buddhism or uh, Confucianism or Taoism? You know, what if your idea of God isn't, you know, the idea of a single sentient, you know, deity or even multiple deities, right? Like, where does it come from? What, what is it? And, and in some ways, does it matter, right? Like, I think that, you know, for me, the answer to that question is it doesn't matter, right? Like my rights exist by virtue of my existence on the planet, you know, but I don't think I'm really in a popular uh, opinion group there. I, I kind of feel that way about, you know, animals to a certain, like living creatures in general, like they, they have some rights too, <laughs> but I'm bigger and I need to eat and, you know, I don't want mice in my house. So, you know, my, my rules, <laughs> I don't know that that could be perceived as wrong. I'm sure, um, you know, if there are animal rights activists out there, uh, who feel differently, I, I might hear from them. And if so, I, I welcome that conversation. I'd be delighted to talk about it and hear your thoughts, but that's not the central issue here. It, uh, it, it merely is, is intended to point out that once again, the idea of rights, it can't be, you know, kind of grounded upon the assumptions of, some third party who has sort of defined it, right? We got to define it for ourselves. And it is defined more or less by how we live and exist amongst one another in a given point in time. The question of individual rights really, for me, seems only to be properly contextualized within a framework, a framework of the infringement of those rights by another or the assertion of the, those rights over another. And so I, I think in, in a more simplistic way, our, the idea of rights really can only be understood within a framework of power. Moreover, there's the problem of individual consciousness and our individual, you know, sort of epistemological understanding of the world. 
this is in my mind, a, you know, a pretty detailed idea that I may break down um, more fully later. But, you know, for the moment, suffice to say, I, I have this belief that our experiences of the world are almost impossible to articulate outside of our own heads, that our objective realities are not objective. They are defined very carefully by the processes of stimulus input into our physiological meat puppets and how our brains then take those inputs and put them all together, influenced by the way our cognitive processes evolve throughout our development, influenced by trauma, influenced by our, you know, the information sphere in which we cultivated these notions, right? It's all very nuanced. And to my way of thinking, since there's really, you know, no way of objectively arbiting a conflict of rights because of that lack of, you know, real shared experience in the world, you know, it seems necessary to me to carefully review the framework that the rights in question sit within. I think it's appropriate to ask some questions about that framework in general. Like, what is its origin, right? Who, who is its author? Who does it benefit? Who does it harm? I, I think we are inundated in our lives with all this information, some of which is survival-based and some of which is those other areas of basic needs, emotional gratitude and safety and security. And, you know, all of those things take up a lot of our focus and attention. And so it's the, the act of empathy and the act of, you know, trying to understand another person's lived experiences is, is, is an active act of compassion and can be a difficult journey for a lot of people, particularly if there feels like there's a threat, you know, like it feels some kind of like a, an existential threat to you to acknowledge some basic, some basic truths, which is, I, I think, a potential factor for a lot of people, whether they, you know, knowingly deal with that or not. I think looking at that framework, again, by, you know, by re extension, it's reasonable to look at rights as an indicator um, of and an agent of structures of power. Um, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that in, uh, in my next uh, part of this episode. So with that, uh, I'm going to leave it there. And thank you very much for listening in. I appreciate it. Um, I hope that there are some ideas here that inspire you or, um, you know, give you an opportunity to think a little bit differently about how we process the idea of rights and, and how that can, you know, be part of our everyday lives, whether, you know, where our rights are being infringed upon or not, right? It's important to sort of stay on top of those things in, in an active uh, and very divisive culture, such as the American culture at this moment in time. So yeah, I hope that you'll um, join me again. And I hope to see you next time in part two, where I talk about power. See ya. Until next time. Oh, 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 oh,